Hello, this is RJ Deacon reading the Supreme Court of the United States opinion in David Shin, Director of Arizona Department of Corrections versus George Russell Kayer, on petition for writ of certiorari to the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, decided December 14th, 2020. Again, this is the actual opinion. It's a per curiam opinion, uh, about 13 pages long, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. Um, there will be some errors, but oh well. Uh, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, AEDPA, restricts the power of federal courts to grant writs of habeas corpus based on claims that were adjudicated on the merits by a state court. That's 28 U.S.C. Section 2254D. When a state court has applied clearly established federal law to reasonably determine facts in the process of adjudicating a claim on the merits, a federal habeas court may not disturb the state court's decision unless its error lies beyond any possibility for fair-minded disagreement. That's uh, Harrington versus Richter. In this case, the Court of Appeals erred in ordering issuance of a writ of habeas corpus despite ample room for reasonable disagreement about the prisoner's ineffective assistance of counsel claim. In so doing, the Court of Appeals clearly violated this court's AEDPA jurisprudence. We therefore grant the petition for certiorari and vacate the judgment below. Here's a 1A. Respondent George Kayer murdered Delbert Haas in 1994. Haas, Kayer, and Lisa Kester were on a trip to gamble in Laughlin, Nevada. While there, Kayer borrowed money from Haas and lost it gambling. Kayer then devised a plan to rob Haas, but Kester questioned whether he could get away with robbing someone he knew. Kayer responded, I guess I'll just have to kill him. Um, that's State versus Kayer in 1999. When the three drove home, Kayer took a detour to a secluded area and stopped on the side of a dirt road. After Haas exited the vehicle to urinate, Kayer grabbed a gun, snuck up to him, and shot him point-blank in the head. After dragging Haas's body into some bushes, Kayer stole his wallet, watch, and jewelry and drove away. Kayer soon realized that he had forgotten to take Haas's house keys, and he therefore returned to the scene of the crime. Fearing that Haas might not be dead, Kayer shot him in the head again while retrieving his keys. Subsequently, Kayer stole a variety of firearms and other things of value from Haas's home after instructing Kester to use a police scanner to look out for police activity. The two sold many of the stolen items under aliases, but Kayer was arrested after Kester went to the police. After a jury trial, before Judge William T. Kiger, Kayer was found guilty of premeditated first-degree murder and related offenses. After being found guilty, Kayer made clear his desire to expedite the sentencing process. He refused to fully cooperate with a mitigation specialist. When Kayer's counsel stated that the specialist needed more time to evaluate Kayer's case, Kayer refused to agree to a continuance, and the trial court ruled him in incompetent to make that or sorry the trial court ruled him competent to make that choice at sentencing the judge again asked Kayer whether he would like more time for investigation but Kayer refused the offer and stated he would not cooperate with the specialist no matter how long sentencing was delayed the court proceeded to sentencing at that time Arizona law required a judge not a jury to determine whether certain aggravating circumstances had been established and a judge was authorized to impose a sentence of death only if at least one such aggravating circumstance was shown, 
and there was no mitigating circumstances. There was no mitigating circumstances that was sufficient to call for leniency. Um, That's the way they wrote it. See Arizona Revised Statute Annotated Section 13-703. That's from 1998. uh, Quoting, or CF, Ring versus Arizona. Subsequently requiring juries to find an aggravating circumstance necessary for imposition of the death penalty. In Kayer's case, the judge found that the state had proved two aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt. First, the court concluded that Kayer had been previously convicted of a serious offense. That's under section 13-703 cap F2. Based on his conviction for first degree burglary in 1981, See section 13-703, cap H9, and uh, Kayer. Second, it determined that Kayer murdered Haas for pecuniary gain. See section 13-703, F5. On the other side of the balance, the court found that Kayer had demonstrated only one non-statutory mitigator, his importance in his son's life. Weighing the aggravating and mitigating factors, Judge Kiger sentenced Kayer to death, and the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed his conviction and sentence. Kayer subsequently fled or filed a petition for post-conviction relief in Arizona Superior Court. Among his many claims, Kayer argued that he received ineffective assistance of counsel because his attorneys failed to investigate mitigating circumstances at the outset of the criminal proceedings. The sentencing judge held a nine-day evidentiary hearing. Kayer's evidence at the hearing broke down into four main categories. Evidence that he was addicted to alcohol and gambling. Evidence that he had suffered a heart attack about six weeks before the murder. Evidence of mental illness, including a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And evidence that members of his family had suffered from similar addictions and illnesses in the past, and that this had affected his childhood. See Kayer versus Ryan in 2019. The court denied relief after applying the familiar two-part test from Strickland v. Washington. The court found that the trial counsel's performance was not deficient because Kayer had refused to cooperate with his mitigation team's effort to gather more mitigation evidence. And in the alternative, the court held that if there had been a finding that the performance prong of the Strickland standard had been met, no prejudice to the defendant can be found. The court added that in stating this conclusion, it had considered the assertion of mental illness, physical illness, jail conditions, childhood development, and any alcohol or gambling addictions. The Supreme Court denied Kayer's petition to review the denial of post-conviction relief. That's uh, State versus Kayer in uh, 2007. Kayer then filed an unsuccessful habeas petition in federal district court. C. 28 U.S.C. Section 2254. Relevant here, the district court rejected Kayer's ineffective assistance claim for failure to show prejudice. As an initial matter, the court concluded that Kayer could not show prejudice because he wanted an extension of his sentencing date and thereby waived presentation of the full-scale mitigation case. Kayer v. Ryan in 2009, citing... Uh, Shiro versus Landegren in 2007. 
Moreover, the court reasoned that CARE's mitigation evidence fell short from the type of mitigation information that would have influenced the sentencing decision. A divided Ninth Circuit panel reversed. On the question of trial counsel's performance, the panel rejected the state court's judgment because, in the judgment of the panel, CARE's attorneys should have begun to pursue mitigation evidence promptly after their appointment. And on the question of prejudice, the court conducted its own review of the evidence and found that trial counsel's alleged failings likely affected Kayer's sentence, based on a comparison of Kayer's case with other Arizona cases. The panel drew two conclusions. First, that the evidence he presented to the state post-conviction court was sufficient to establish a statutory mitigating circumstance of mental impairment. And second, that there was a reasonable probability that Arizona's Supreme Court would have vacated Kayer's death sentence on direct review had it been presented with the mitigating evidence offered at state post-conviction relief hearing. For these reasons, the panel majority found that there is a reasonable probability Kayer's sentence would have been less than death and that the state's post-conviction court was unreasonable in concluding otherwise. Judge Owens dissented in relevant part explaining that the Arizona post-conviction court had not unreasonably applied federal law in light of the aggravating and mitigating circumstances in this case. In his view, Kayer's mitigating evidence was hardly overwhelming, and he argued that the majority had given short shrift to the undisputedly strong aggravating factor of pecuniary gain. The majority's holding, he concluded, resulted from impermissibly substituting its own judgment that Kayer was prejudiced for that of the state court. Arizona then sought at the then sought and the Ninth Circuit denied rehearing in bank. Judge Bay B authored a dissent from the denial of in bank review, which was joined by eleven other judges, see Kayer versus Ryan, twenty nineteen. Judge B asserted that the panel majority cast aside AEDPA's highly deferential standard of review. Instead, he wrote, the panel majority had applied a de novo masquerading as deference approach that the Supreme Court had repeatedly condemned. Citing 14 cases since 2002 in which this court has reversed the Ninth Circuit's application of the AEDPA. Under the AEDPA and this court's precedent, he contended, there was no ignoring the obvious conclusion that a reasonable jurist could conclude that Kayer was not in fact prejudiced by his counsel's failings in this case. The mitigating impact of Kayer's new evidence was, at best, highly debatable. Applying the proper standard of review, Judge B explained that it was possible that fair-minded jurists could find Kayer's evidence insufficient to establish a reasonable probability of a different outcome. Um, citing Richter, after the denial of rehearing in bank, Arizona filed a petition for certiorari in this court. Um, on to 2A, Kayer asserts that his death sentence was imposed in violation of his Sixth Amendment right to effective assistance of counsel. As the state court recognized, this court's decision in Strickland v. Washington provides the proper framework for asserting that claim. Under Strickland, Kayer must show that his counsel provided, er, yep, provided deficient performance that prejudiced the defense. In the capital sentencing context, the prejudiced inquiry asks, prejudice inquiry 
asks whether there is a reasonable probability that absent the errors, the sentencer, including an appellate court, to the extent uh, it independently reweighs the evidence, would have concluded that the balance of aggravating and mitigating circumstances did not warrant death. The Strickland standard is highly demanding. Um, that's quoting Kimmelman versus Morrison. A reasonable probability means a substantial, not just conceivable, likelihood of a different result. That's a Cullen versus Pinholster. Quoting Richter. When an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is presented in a federal habeas petition, a state prisoner faces additional burdens. Among other things, no relief may be granted with respect to any claim that was adjudicated on the merits in state court proceedings unless the adjudication of the claim, as relevant here, resulted in a decision that was contrary to or involved in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law, as determined by the Supreme Court of the United States. That's 28 U.S.C. section 2254D. Here, the state court applied the correct governing legal principle to the facts of the prisoner's case. Um, Lockyer versus Anderade. So the question is whether its decision involved an unreasonable application of this court's precedent to meet that standard. A prisoner must show far more than that the state court's decision was merely wrong or even clear error. Um, Virginia versus LeBlanc. The prisoner must show that the state court's decision is so obviously wrong that its error lies beyond any possibility for fair-minded disagreement. Richter again. Congress meant this standard to be difficult to meet. We have recognized the special importance of the AEDPA framework in cases involving Strickland claims. Ineffective assistance claims can function as a way to escape rules of waiver and forfeiture. Um, Richter again and they can drag federal courts into resolving questions of state law. Moreover, we have recognized that the more general the rule, the more leeway state courts have. Uh, that's Sexton versus Beaudreau. Uh, quoting Rinko versus Lett. Because the Strickland standard is a general standard, a state court has even more latitude to reasonably determine that a defendant has not satisfied that standard. That's Knowles versus Mirizantz. Uh The Ninth Circuit resolved this case in a manner fundamentally inconsistent with the AEDPA. Most striking, the, the panel essentially evaluated the merits de novo, only tacking on a perfunctory statement at the end of its analysis, asserting that the state court's decision was unreasonable. Um, quoting Beaudreau, C. Richter. In other words, it appears to have treated the unreasonableness question as a test of its confidence in the result it would reach under de novo review. More specifically, the panel concluded de novo that there is a reasonable probability Kerr's sentence would have been less than death, and then, and then simply appended the statement that the state post-conviction review court was unreasonable in concluding otherwise. Indeed, the panel repeatedly re reached conclusions such as that the evidence presented to the post-conviction court established the statutory mitigating circumstance of mental impairment and that there was a 
a causal connection between Kayer's mental impairment and the crime, without ever framing the relevant question as whether a fair-minded jurist could reach a different conclusion. Applying the proper standard of review, we vacate the Court of Appeals judgment. Judge Kiger found that Kayer had failed to show deficient performance, and assuming deficient performance, that he failed to show prejudice. Federal courts may not disturb the judgment of state courts unless each ground supporting the state court decision is examined and found to be unreasonable. That's uh, Wetzville versus Lambert. Thus, if a fair-minded jurist could agree with either Judge Kiger's deficiency or prejudice holding, the reasonableness of other of the other is beside the point. See Parker versus Matthews. Um, parenthetical. It is irrelevant whether the court also invoked a ground of questionable validity. Uh, Richter. We focus on the state's court state court's prejudice determination insofar as the state court offered its conclusion on the prejudice question without articulating its reasoning supporting that conclusion. We must determine what arguments or theories could have supported the state court's determination that Kayer failed to show prejudice. Then we must assess whether fair-minded jurists could disagree on the correctness of the state court's decision, if based on one of those arguments or theories. I'm quoting Yarborough versus Alvarado and C. Pinholster. Perhaps the most probable reason for Judge Kiger's no prejudice determination is simply that the new mitigation evidence offered in the post-conviction proceeding did not create a substantial likelihood of a different sentencing outcome. The Ninth Circuit generally considered that possibility, but in doing so, impermissibly substituted its own judgment for that of the state court. Instead of applying deferential review, uh, Woodford versus Viscotti, it characterized Kayer's prior offense aggravator, first-degree burglary, as relatively weak in comparison with the other offenses that qualified under the Arizona capital sentencing law. And on the other side of the balance, it attributed considerable weight to evidence that it viewed as showing that Kayer's capacity to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of law was significantly impaired. Um, that's Arizona Revised Statutes Annotated, Section 13-703, Cap G-1. Perhaps some jurists would share those views, but that is not the relevant standard. The question is whether a fair-minded jurist could take a different view. See Viscotti. Uh, see also Pinholster. And the answer is yes. For one thing, a fair-minded jurist might differently evaluate the effect of Kayer's prior offense aggravator, let alone the pecuniary gain aggravator. Arizona first-degree burglary required as an element that he or an accomplice was armed with explosives, a deadly weapon, or a dangerous instrument. That's uh, Arizona Revised Statutes Annotated Section 13-1508 Cap A from 1978. And Judge Kiger determined that Kayer was armed with a .41 caliber handgun, during his prior offense, um, excerpts of record in number 09-99027, a fair-minded jurist could see Kayer's past conviction as having substantial weight in the context of this murder by shooting. Fair-minded jurists also could take a different view of Kayer's mitigating evidence. 
Kayer offered evidence that he suffered from bipolar disorder and untreated drinking and gambling addictions at the time of the crime, but reasonable jurists could debate the extent to which those factors significantly impaired his ability to appreciate the wrongfulness of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the law at the time of the murder. For example, the record reveals that Kayer had extensive opportunities to consider his actions, planning the murder in advance, driving his victim to a remote area, and subsequently returning to the murder scene and shooting the victim in the head a second time. Moreover, Kayer's planning of the murder efforts, Kayer's planning of the murder, efforts to hide the body, interactions with Kester before and after the murder, and attempts to profit from his crimes using an alias display a measure of control and intentionality. On this record, a fair-minded jurist reasonably could conclude that Kayer's evidence of mental impairment, in the words of Judge Owens, was hardly overwhelming. See also um, Judge B dissenting from denial of rehearing in Bank. Kayer counters that his claim is unusually strong because the Arizona Supreme Court would have independently reweighed the evidence on direct appeal. That's quoting Strickland. In his view, the similarity between post-conviction case, his post-conviction case and judgments that the state Supreme Court has issued in other cases on direct review supports his Strickland claim. Arizona responds that the state Supreme Court would not have reweighed the evidence in the manner contemplated by Strickland, and it asked this court to hold that past state judgments on direct review are categorically irrelevant to AEDPA review. We need not address these broad questions in order to resolve this case. Even if Arizona's sentencing practices involve reweighing evidence on direct appeal, capital sentencing requires an individualized determination on the basis of the character of the individual in the circumstances of the crime. That's uh, Zant versus Stevens. For present purposes, it suffices to say that because the facts in each capital sentencing case are unique, the weighing of aggravating and mitigating evidence in a prior published decision is unlikely to provide clear guidance about how a state court would weigh the evidence in a later case. Kayer, like the panel below, focuses his argument on the Arizona Supreme Court decision in State v. Bookover. But that decision falls far short of placing the state court's prejudice determination in this case beyond the realm of fair-minded disagreement. In Bookover, there was only one aggravating circumstance, a prior conviction for a serious offense, whereas Kayer's sentencing involved two statutory aggravators. And as for the mitigating evidence in Bookover, while it is far from clear exactly what mitigating evidence influenced the court's individualized sentencing determination, the opinion refers to evidence that appears significantly different from that in this case. The Bookover opinion refers to evidence of a uh, neurological lesion of a type that caused a relinquishment of one's self-autonomy. By contrast, a reasonable jurist could view Kayer's mitigation evidence in a different light for the reasons explained above. In these circumstances, the Bookover decision does not come close to showing the sort of extreme malfunction in the state criminal justice system that would permit federal court intervention. See, uh, Richter. Under the AEDPA, State courts play the leading role in assessing challenges to state sentences based on federal law. A state court heard Kayer's evidence and concluded that he failed to show prejudice. 
the court below exceeded its authority in rejecting that determination, which was not so obviously wrong as to be beyond any possibility for fair-minded disagreement. Under Section 2254D, that is the only question that matters. We grant the petition for a writ of certiorari, vacate the judgment of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, and remand the case to the to that court for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so opinion, or it is so ordered. Justice Breyer, Justice Sotomayor, and Justice Kagan dissent. Um, and again, it's a procurement opinion, but obviously you can do the math. Um, if you'd like to reach the podcast, I can be reached at rhodesscholar80 at gmail.com. That's R-O-A-D-S and the number 80. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast or me as I slog through law school, please find the podcast on uh, Patreon or follow the PayPal link in the show notes. Thank you.